the question is, where do you find God? Well, I find God when I go running, uh, especially uh, like those uh, nice natural trails. When I'm with my family at the movies. Most of the time, I find God in stories and narrative, and movie makers are some of the cream of the crop storytellers in our day and age, so movies. I feel like when I'm alone in my room, sitting on my bed, I experience God the most. I find God in my marriage. Coffee shops, because I like people. That's where people kind of, to me, come alive and start talking about what they really feel in a coffee shop. I meet God there. This series is designed to continue to answer that question, identifying the fact that God is everywhere. My name is Jonathan Scott, one of the pastors here, and I am so glad to see every single one of you. Thanks for being here, whether you are gathered here at the South Park campus, or you are gathered at one of our other campuses throughout the Charlotte and surrounding areas, or you are gathering at home online. Thank you for being a part. Before I dive into the lesson, I want to kind of tell you what took place, and I want to kind of give a plug for bridge groups. Something happens when people meet together and they study and they meditate on God's word. When they come ready and prepared, there's a sense of God's presence when they do that. And so I want to encourage you. I have a men's group, and every time that we meet, there's just that sense that we're not meeting just our, the group of men, but that Jesus is meeting with us as we are pouring into the, his word. I also experienced that with my staff. The, South, the staff here at South Park, every week, like many campuses, the staff gets together and they have meetings. And for us, we always start with a devotional on Tuesdays, and we kind of work through God's word. This particular week, last week, Steve Brown brought this devotional from First Peter, which is what I'm going to be dealing with a little bit today. And there was a sense of God's presence there, the, pouring through the word, being transparent with one another. It was a powerful moment. So if you are not a part of a group of people that gets around God's word and study, I strongly, wholeheartedly endorse and encourage you to do that. But I had the very strong sense from that devotional this past week that the message today needed to take a bit of a different turn from where I thought it was going to be. Last week, we gathered together. We were looking through the lens of Jesus' life at how to deal with the circumstances that are coming against you. We looked at Jesus in Gethsemane. He knew what was coming. And so this situation of distress that can be crushing for us and how we can, looking at Jesus' example, how we can get through that even as we brace ourselves for what's to come. If you remember the prayer that I kind of introduced to you last week, the prayer of distress is, God, help me to trust that your will is good, especially in those times when your will is hard. I got the impression that we need to kind of go beyond that, not just what's coming, but what, do you, what happens when you're in it in the pursuit of God's will. At the end of the service last week, a, a, a sweet friend of mine came up and said, Jonathan, appreciate the message. What do you mean by God's will? It's an excellent question, and quite frankly, to give an adequate answer, I'd need an entire sermon and an entire series to deal with that properly because there's a variety of aspects of the will of God, his sovereign will, his permissive will, but the two questions that you and I usually ask, and one that's most dominant as it applies to God's will is this, what is God's will for my life? That's a question we ask a lot. What is God's will for my life? Am I going to get married? Should I do a, uh, take a new job? Should I move? Are we going to have kids? What, what, what's my upward mobility? What, what does all that look like? That's what we're interested in is what is God's will for me? That's legit. I want to suggest to you that there's a much more important question, and that is, 
What is God's will? Period. What is God's will? Period. And folks, you can go throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and there is plenty of information to determine what God's will is for our life. We can go to the Ten Commandments. We can look at the great commandment to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. The great commission, which is to spread the gospel all over the world and disciple nations. We can look at those things that talk about how we should serve one another, all the one another's in scripture, love one another, gather together, encourage one another, forgive one another. And so there are places we can go to to find out what God's will is for our life that we don't have to, we don't have to pray about God. What is it? It's there. So I want to give you kind of a working definition today on God's will. Here it is. God's will, aligning our life with what is good and what is right in a way that reflects God's character and promotes God's purpose. God's will for us, God's will, period, is to align our lives with what is good, with what is right in a way that reflects his character and promotes God's purpose, God's kingdom. Now, you step onto that trail, you step into that pursuit, you'll definitely have the blessing of God, but guess what else is coming? Opposition, forces. You're gonna get negative consequences from a very hostile world who cares nothing about the will of God, period, and you're going to enter into some opposition when you have a strong, faithful pursuit of God's will. There's going to be, some of you right now are probably already experiencing that right now. Some of you may have lost a job or a promotion or an opportunity to get a job because you refuse to take part in unethical practices at work and therefore you're no longer part of the team. Some of you may have lost a partner for marriage because you have stood firm on the commitment to moral purity and the other person, they don't feel the same way and so you're alone. There are people that I have in my, in my background, my network of relationships, that when they declared their commitment to Jesus Christ, they were no longer allowed a seat at the family table. They were rejected. Some of you may have been experiencing that from your friends that in your desire to follow Christ, you're no longer invited to those get-togethers or those parties or those community gatherings because of your faith in Christ. When we take a stand, it's not necessarily that it's going to happen all the time, but you can expect that at some particular point, the pursuit of God's will is going to be met with some kind of opposition. So here's a question. Does our response to the opposing forces in life, the way that we respond, does it reflect the character of God as modeled by Jesus Christ? Does it reflect the character and purpose of God as modeled by our master, by our king, Jesus Christ? So today, the message moves from getting ready to face those forces and it crosses the line. What do you do when you're in it? What do you do when you're in that place of suffering, that place of opposition? So in answer to the question, where do you find God? You find God in the doing of his will, even in the the face of opposition. So let me invite you to consider this particular prayer that I'll introduce again at the end of the message, this persevering prayer. And it's like this. When you're in the place of suffering, when you're in the place of opposition, God, help me to persevere in doing your will even when opposition gets severe. God, 
Help me to persevere when things get severe, to stay the course. We're going to take a look through the vision of Peter, Jesus, one of Jesus' right-hand men and faithful follower of Jesus Christ, who later on, after the resurrection and after he has been given the power to preach and to be an apostle, and he is writing to groups of Christians who are scattered all over the Roman Empire. They're dealing with their own suffering. They're dealing with their own opposition. And so Peter is going to write to encourage them. And understand, as he's writing this letter, he has in his mind a really clear picture of what he's experienced first hand in looking at the example that Jesus left with his own life. It's not just that Jesus taught it, it's just that also that Jesus lived it. And so even though he's going to try to, to apply some domestic applications to where they are then, there are some divine principles within this particular passage that will give us a lens through which we're going to take a look at how Jesus persevered in the midst of intense opposition. Not Golgotha, not the cross yet, but when he met with chief priests and Pilate, we'll take a look at that. But let's take a look at First Peter, this letter that Peter wrote, just a few verses in chapter two. And as we always do, as is our custom and privilege, in the honor of the reading of the word of God, because of its author and its impact, I ask you to stand to your feet if you are able. We'll take a look at this passage from First Peter chapter two, beginning with verse 20. Here's what Peter says, keeping in mind the vision of Jesus. And by the way, before I read, let me just tell you that this whole thing of suffering this is tough stuff. This is, this is the hard aspect of the Christian life that we need to know how to do well. Here's what Peter says in verse 20. When you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly or fairly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness, for what is right. And by his wounds, you have been healed. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Finding God in doing his will, aligning our lives with that which is good and right in a way that reflects God's character and promotes God's purpose. So let me give you some things to put on this lens before we take a look at what happened with Jesus from this particular passage, lessons we can learn. Number one, what Peter says, God, and by the way, this is for the follower of Jesus Christ. Anybody who professes Jesus as Savior and Lord, this applies to us. Non-negotiable. All Christians are called to do the will of God. All Christians are called to that which is good. It's a divine expectation that God has on us, but it's not just that God expects it only. He also empowers that success in our life. God's will, the things he's called us to do, he has also given us the power to accomplish that. And yet, faithfulness to pursue that path is going to bring about some opposition. And so here's what he says. If we are called to pursue the will of God, then we're, the reality of the Christian life is that we're called to deal with the opposition that comes to that pursuit. And that our faithful, patient, enduring of those opposing 
forces is a work of the grace of God in us and through us. We have to accept the fact, as followers of Jesus Christ in a world that hated him, hate us, we're going to receive that, and how we endure reflects the character of our relationship. That's number one, is that we're all called to good. Number two, Jesus is our example. Jesus leaves for us an example. Peter uses two particular word pictures in this one. The first one, I have horrible handwriting, okay? I have horrible handwriting, I write in tongues. So if you see my writing, you'll need an interpreter because it's like chicken scratch. But when I was in school, they kind of walked us through the process. Many of you probably did this as well, piece of paper. And there are letters that are already on the page and you got to take your pencil and you got to trace the cursive letters as they've been given to you to reproduce what's on the paper. I was always tracing outside the lines, right? That's one reason why I write like a doctor. I, it's it, it, unintelligible. But that's what we do. We trace. The word Peter uses here for an example is underwriting. In other words, the intention is for us to trace what has already been done for us. That's the first word picture. The second word picture is to follow in his steps. To follow in his steps. The word for steps in the original language actually means an imprint that has been left in the soil where a foot walked. And then following his steps means that you place your foot in the imprint that was left by the person that went ahead of you. So in other words, you're walking in the same way and with the same motives as the person you are following. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Kind of like Simon Says. Y'all know Simon Says? You ever played Simon Says? How many of you know Simon Says? Tell you what, we're in church, right? How about we play a game right now? Simon Says? Play around? Okay, everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. See, y'all lost because I did not say Simon Says. So sit back down. You lost that one. Okay, so... So now here we go. Simon says, raise your right hand. Great. Simon says, raise your left hand. Simon says, bang them together in applause. Excellent. Put them down. You lost again. I didn't say, Simon says, put your hands down. They're exactly right. See, when you play Simon says, if you want to win, you got to pay real close attention, right? You got to be looking with that attention and with a devotion to do what was said. Folks, that little exercise is an illustration of what it means to follow Christ. We're paying attention. And everything that the Savior says, everything that the Savior does, we do it. That is the standard operating procedure for a follower of Jesus Christ is not to interpret Christ's commands from the perspective of their own convenience, but to simply do what Christ has led. That's not easy, but that's the direction that we're moving. So Jesus has left for us that example. We find in this particular passage how Jesus dealt with the opposition. Peter reminds us, and he, and he sees it, he, he's heard it, he knows it, that when Jesus was insulted, when he was reviled, he didn't spit back the words of insult. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten revenge. He didn't retaliate. He didn't bow up and strike back. Because Jesus remained faithful to the one that he entrusted his life to. That's what it says, that he entrusted himself to the one who judges rightly, the one who takes a look at all the particulars of a case and always makes a right and fair judgment. Jesus completely, throughout the entire process, entrusted himself completely to Father 
God. It's trust in Abba. So now, we're going to take a look at a passage in John as Jesus is standing before Pilate and to see and to learn from God how he pursued God's will in the face of intense and severe trial through which he suffered. As we come to this passage in John chapter 18, let me remind you, Jesus has already been sipping from the cup of suffering. He's already been swallowing from the cup of sorrows. Jesus has been completely abandoned by his friends, betrayed, denied. They've left him. He's alone. Jesus has already spent time with the chief priest over the Jewish faith. As a matter of fact, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that the supreme, eternal, divine chief priest, Jesus himself, is standing in front of one who is petty, who is broken, who is sinful and wicked, and Jesus is not saying anything to defend himself or to bring this person to account. It will come later, but not right now. Jesus stands before him. And even in, in that particular gathering, before he even gets to Pilate, Jesus has been slapped in the face. Jesus has been spit on. Jesus has been punched in the face and in the head numerous times. So that when he stands before Pilate, if there's not blood, there are definitely welts and contusions. Jesus has been roughly mistreated, and he stands now before a judge of the earth. Again, an ironic position. Jesus is the judge. He will be the final judge. The person he's standing in front of one day, that person will stand in front of him, and Jesus will judge him like he will judge all of us. But in John chapter 18, verse 33, Pilate went back into his headquarters because the Jewish leaders had brought Jesus to Pilate to execute him. They didn't have the authority on their own to do that. They wanted Rome to do that. And so Pilate summons Jesus and says to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? <laughs> I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replies and says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Oh, so you are a king then, says Pilate. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this. And I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said, what is truth? Oh, if Pilate had just waited a little bit and let Jesus answer that question. But Pilate left that and tried to release Jesus and tried to appease the Jews on the outside. Here's what's interesting. What's interesting is what Jesus didn't do. What's interesting is what Jesus had the ability to and did not do. Number one, he didn't defend himself. Jesus did not defend himself. He didn't say, hey, Pilate, I'm so glad I'm with you. Those guys are crazy. I'm innocent at the trumped up charges. They couldn't get their act together. This, this is wrong. This is injustice. And Pilate, I need you to deliver me. He didn't say that. He didn't defend himself, though he was innocent. Folks, he didn't demand his rights. He didn't demand his rights, which is something that you and I as Americans, we we're big about defending our rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Listen to me. I'm, a, I'm proud to be an Ameri American. 
But there's a lot of America that I'm not very proud of. But beyond all that, here it is. My first citizenship is not to this country. My first and foremost and eternal citizenship is to the master and king, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that is your first, foremost, and eternal place of loyalty and allegiance. It is to Jesus Christ. Now, hear me carefully. This isn't going to go over real well. Jesus says that whoever's going to come after me, whoever's going to follow me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. So what Jesus models and commands is that sometimes, my friends, sometimes, as followers of that king, sometimes he calls us to lay down our rights for his authority in our can't follow him well without being ready to lay down your rights. Jesus did not defend himself. Didn't demand his rights. Number two, Jesus did not retaliate. When it says that they insulted him, those words for insults, those are the kinds of words that are designed to break your spirit. It's designed to do damage to your, your psyche, to your personal. Jesus did not respond in kind. He did not retaliate. He didn't respond with anger and bitterness and resentment and I'm going to get you for what... That didn't come out. As a matter of fact, Jesus had every right to bring about judgment. He didn't threaten judgment, although he had every right to. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 6, when Peter, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter lopped off some person's ear and Jesus healed it back, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you don't think that with one word I can command thousands of angels, five legions, 60,000 60, angels to show up at one time and end this? You don't think I've got the power and the authority with one word to call that kind of fire down and bring an end to all of this? I have that kind of power. Friends, which, which is a greater expression of power? To have unlimited resources at your disposal and use it? or to have unlimited resources and choose not to use it for something greater. He could have, had every right to, and yet Jesus did not retaliate. But number three, Jesus did not weaken in his resolve to pursue the will of God to the very end. These are the things I want you to pay attention to. Jesus came out of the Garden of Gethsemane, resolved to go all the way, not just to the end, but even beyond that into glory. Didn't defend himself didn't retaliate or threaten revenge, never weakened in his resolve to move forward in pursuing the will of God. And my friends, I, I, listen, I say this with difficulty. That is the example that we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to imitate. And so we'll take a look in the passage to see exactly how Jesus did this how to persevere well in a way that reflects the character of Jesus Christ in the pursuit of God's will. So here it is. When, you in that, when you're in that place, when you're dealing with the opposition, when the forces are coming against you because of your commitment to pursue the will of God, number one, remember your identity. 
Remember your identity. Remember your true citizenship, where you are from. Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Even though his own nation, leaders had handed him over to Pilate, as Pilate had said, Jesus made it very, very clear. Yeah, I know they handed me over. This is not my kingdom. I was born into Israel, Jesus would say. I'm, yeah, I was born in Israel, but that is not my kingdom. And my kingdom is not just where I'm a citizen of. My kingdom is where I rule from. In other words, our significance does not come ultimately from where we were born, but from where we were born again. Our eternal presence security that gives us the confidence to live our life with patience, with dignity, with purpose, doesn't come from where we were born, but where we were born again from. That you and I, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we are citizens of the kingdom of God first and forever. Never forget where you are your true identity. Don't forget who you are in Christ and do not forget whose you are. That identity influences how you and I persevere our trials and tribulations. Number two, remember your true priority. Remember your true priority. Here again, Jesus says to Pilate, I was born for this. I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Jesus is the truth. And he came to testify and to display and explain the nature of God, the truth, the true reality of who God is. He came to explain the condition of fallen man. He came to proclaim the truth of mankind's one and only hope for salvation in Jesus. And he was going to testify, not just with his lips, but with his life on a cross that would grant human beings in their humility to receive the grace of God. Jesus says, I came into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Even so much so that when Jesus died, when Jesus died, the centurion and the soldiers that were there, the scripture says that when they saw all that took place and they saw how he died, they glorified God and said, truly, this man was a son of God. When we're in our moments of pressure, our moments of suffering, remember your priority. Your life, even through the suffering, is to be a testimony to the reality, the magnificence, the grace, the glory, the power, the truth of Jesus Christ even in the difficulty. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? How some people can see a clear image of God as they watch faithful followers living out their worship in the midst of adversity. They see God so clearly in ways that's better than anything anybody can preach from a pulpit. They see a living revelation of Jesus. You and I, and listen, that can come with tears. <laughs> I can come with heartbreak. I can come with disappointment. It's, that's okay. But that what comes out of us inevitably and eventually must be the reality of God. Because sometimes when we get to that place, we want to curse God rather than trust him. Do not forget your true priority to testify through your life the truth of Jesus Christ. Number three, remember your true authority. 
Remember your true authority. Jesus said in verse 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to and follows my voice. There's a a tendency in our time of struggle to kind of block things out. All we really want to hear is about how we're going to get out of this, how we're going to get back to good days, how how things are going to kind of go the way that we want them to, how we're going to be able to re-embrace comfort and ease, popularity and prestige. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Those, those who are mine, if they are of the truth, if they are on the side of truth, they are listening for my voice and they're following. Don't forget, remember the authority. We don't get it from the world. We get it from Jesus who is the truth greater than our trial. And then finally, remember your true security. Remember, focus on, appropriate, embrace, claim your true security. So here's what happened. Pilate tried to appease the Jewish leaders by saying, hey, I can release either Jesus or Barabbas. They wanted Barabbas, so that didn't work. Jesus says, okay, I'm gonna make Jesus a mess and hopefully that'll be the end of it. And so Pilate, knowing that Jesus was innocent, he knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that these guys were doing it because of their envy. He had Jesus brutally His hope was, okay, if I bring him out completely destroyed because of the beating, maybe that'll be enough and we can end this and and move on. So now in chapter 19, Jesus is standing before this weak-willed governor. He is unrecognizable. He has been whipped to the point of almost death bleeding on the white marble steps, a crown of thorns pressed down into his skull. You can't recognize this. He's not the same looking man he was at the first interview. In this second interview, Jesus is close to being absolutely physically destroyed. How he could even stand there is a miracle. But Pilate's going to have a conversation with Jesus. Chapter 19, where are you from? Jesus didn't answer him. Pilate probably was a little irritated about that and says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the power to release you? I have the authority to crucify you or set you free. Don't you know that? Now Jesus speaks. Jesus gasped out these words. You would have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given you from above. Do you know how easy it would have been for Jesus to have said, okay, I give. I'll say whatever you want me to say. Just please, just stop this. I I give into your authority. Yes, you have the authority. Then please, in the name of all that is right and good, please release me. From, from this. He doesn't. If he can raise his head, he looks into the face of this political conqueror and says, the only authority you have is what's been given to you from above. Now, 
and it's going to get worse for, for Jesus. But Jesus is communicating in that moment that he completely, fully understands that there is a power greater that's at work, an authority far greater than anything on earth, and he has already submitted himself to that power. He has already entrusted his life to the God who judges fairly. Jesus is going to have to sit and listen. This is Jesus Christ, the incarnate God who has been the faithful leader of Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus was a part of that before he became incarnate. Jesus was their leader. Jesus was their deliverer. Jesus is their Messiah. Jesus is going to have to stand there and listen to the Jewish people scream out loud after all the faithfulness of God through the centuries, he's going to have to stand there and hear them say, we have no king but Caesar. Have you been tempted to say something like that? In this situation, in that particular trial, I've got no king, no other authority but X or Y. Hearing that, Jesus is still committed to the course of pursuing and accomplishing the will of God because he has entrusted himself completely to God. When you're in the midst of your struggle, of your suffering, do not forget that you are eternally in the hands of God. And he will not. Listen, I, I, I know, not like Jesus does. I, I, nothing I've ever gone through in my life can even come close. But I'm so grateful that Jesus is not having a pain pageant. Who's got the worst pain? Jesus meets us in our pain, in our suffering, with the grace that he had of being able to get through his so I know that right now, at this particular point, some of you are saying, well, that's not a really happy message. You want to check out and say, I don't know if I want a part of this. Listen, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to make sure that you understand. Here it is again from 1 Peter chapter 2. Here it is again. God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example. He has left for you an example that you should follow in his steps. You can't get around that. But here's the beautiful thing is when we're committed to pursuing his will for his glory, we encounter an expression of the presence and the power of God we can only meet in that moment. Listen to me. I know that sometimes surrendering your life to Jesus Christ is like we say, okay, I'm giving all of my life to you all at one time. Gonna go out in a blaze of glory. But sometimes it's like that. It's like a thousand dollar bill that we put on the table and say, Jesus, it's all yours. But Jesus actually tells us, take the $1,000 bill, go to the bank, and exchange it for quarters. $1,000 worth of quarters. Because you'll be making 25 investments, 25 cent investments here, 50 cent investments there, all throughout your life. As you and I have learned as followers of Jesus Christ, it doesn't all happen at once. That there are times where we have to make decisions of how we will live our life how we will continue to pray even when we don't feel like praying, how we will continue to stand for racial injustice and invest 
in that, how we will have to serve one another, how we will have to ask for forgiveness or receive forgiveness. Those are the kinds of short-term investments that have long-term payouts because it's all throughout our life. How we'll make sure that we will walk in righteousness and purity before God. But as I said before, there's something powerful of the reality that it is in those moments that we are committed to pursuing him, to doing his will, that his presence and his power is always available as the divine resource to help us accomplish his will. And in that place, you and I can experience true, intimate fellowship and communion with the one who suffered for us and who suffers with us. And all of that flows from this powerful gospel that Peter introduced in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. For by his wounds, through his suffering, we are healed, forgiven, reconciled. Our future is bright. Our destiny is secure because of the love of God and his faithfulness that we no longer need to worry what the world or what the forces will do to us because of the God who has already secured us by his love and grace to his glory. Therefore, we press on, following his example, receiving his power, living for his glory. I would like to pray for us. And I'm going to kind of pray a prayer that's got two parts. I want to pray a prayer of deliverance. <laughs> because for some of you that are in the midst of really hard situations, I want to pray for you. I want to pray that God would deliver you. That's a legit prayer. You come before God with that kind of burden, I want to pray that God would deliver you from it. But I also want to pray for your perseverance. That until God does, that you and I will be faithful to pursue the will of God. So would you join me in prayer? And if you're not in that situation, you probably know someone that is. Would you agree with me in prayer for them as well? Heavenly Father, gathered in this room and online, those at the other campuses, there are people who are in intense situations. Those who are not sure how they're going to get through the next day or how they're going to deal with the situations in their marriage or their family or their job or their health. And they're being crushed right now. Father, I pray in accordance to your love and purpose, I ask that God, you deliver them. I pray that Lord, you would reset them in an abundance of your provisions and that you would end the suffering. I pray that because I know that you can. And so I pray that for them, that they would know your comfort, your peace, your victory, and your deliverance. I ask that. But Father, I also pray that until that happens, that you would also grant the spiritual resource that enables us to persevere when things are severe. That in following Jesus' example, that God will continue to follow you, appropriating the divine resources necessary to get us to the next place. But confident that you're not watching us merely, that you are walking with us and 
the footsteps of how we are to walk are still very clear. And you are close and you are with us. And so, Father, I pray that you would give the ability, the divine grace to press on and to persevere so that we can honor you in the way that we live our life aligned to the pursuit of your will. Jesus, you're our king. It's an honor to belong to your kingdom. So glorify yourself in us as we offer our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May I ask you now to stand and let's do one of the most powerful things we can do in those forces, and that is, in spite of it, to offer worship and praise to a God who is worthy.